All right, friends, welcome back to Almost Heretical. I'm Nate here with Shelby, and we're continuing in this canon series. We're on episode three of this canon series. We've talked a lot about the timeline of the Bible, these biblical texts that we have. We've talked a lot about, um, in episode two, about the, the Bible being inspired, infallible, and errant, and all this kind of stuff. And now, where are we going in episode three here, Shelby? In this episode, uh, kind of following up on the last one, talking about inspiration and how inspiration was not actually a criteria for what was included in the New Testament canon. In this episode, we're going to talk about what were those criteria. Um, and it's there's there's three different that criteria we're going to focus on and look at examples and exceptions to each of those, and then um, what that knowledge does for us as far as how we engage the, these texts and texts outside the New Testament. So growing up, what did you think were the requirements, I guess, for a book being in the canon or not being in the canon. I don't know. Did you, I, I didn't think about it so much. Did you think about this? Yeah, I feel like I really didn't think about it that much. Um, I, if I had been asked about it, I probably just would have said, well, the texts that were inspired were are in the New Testament. But then if anyone had pushed me on that, then I probably would have acknowledged, hmm, that doesn't totally make sense. Like, how do you know if something's inspired? So I, I don't think I would have known. Yeah, I I don't think I would have known either, which is kind of weird, right? Like that that this wasn't talked about more. Considering we, that we were raised with the, you know, definite knowledge that the Bible was like the most important thing ever. Like, oh, I I mean my church we were preaching through the Bible verse by verse yeah. every week. And I think a lot of listeners out there, I've talked to you and the churches that you went to, that's how it was being preached for you too. I mean so much had to do with this specific bound book that we have. The book that I've been using for, as a resource for a lot of the information in this series is actually called A High View of Scripture, The Authority of the Bible and the Formation of the New Testament Canon. It's by Dr. Craig Allard, and he kind of writes it with that premise. I know I've mentioned it before, but his his basic um, idea in the book is if we as a Christian church, specifically his audience being evangelical Christians, if we're going to claim to have a high view of Scripture and to make it so incredibly important to us, then we should be honest and educated about the process by which it came to be. Hmm. Okay, so let's let's get honest about this process. Okay, so we are going to talk about uh, the criteria that went into the canon. And as often happens at the beginning of our episodes, I feel like, We've, the terminology that I even use in setting up the the topic is already kind of flawed. So we're using that top, that word criteria, but that can be a little bit of a misnomer because I guess when we use the idea of criteria, it makes it sound like everybody sat down in this meeting and they're like, all right, here's our list of criteria. Does it do these texts meet the criteria? Do they not? But that's not really what happened. I'm, maybe there's a better word to use, but the criteria that we're going to talk about, which I'll say really quickly, are apostolicity, Catholicity, and orthodoxy for the people that were just waiting for that. Mm. Those terms are really categories we've created to look back on the process with. So the the people who were doing the the sifting and the using of scripture and the popularizing of scripture and the collection of scripture, they weren't necessarily, they didn't have these three criteria in their hand and sifting everything through those. But as we look back on the process, scholars have essentially narrowed it down to when they look at the letters that were written back and forth between church fathers, that's a huge source for us. The main source of how we know how this process went is letters between church fathers. Wow. Yeah. Um, and when they look at, you know, councils and things, that's, the scholars have essentially narrowed it down to these are the three most important um, types of 
factors that the early church looked at to decide whether texts were authoritative or not, and eventually whether they should be included in this very slow-moving, slowly-forming canon. Okay, so what year was this? What? Years? What years were this? Uh, was this happening? Over? Many, many, I mean, centuries. That's um, what I was going to say. Like, it feels like this, I mean, even just talk about a council, getting together a council. I mean, that's pretty easy to do in our day and age, where you decide, like, okay, it's happening in... Kansas City. I don't know. I'm just making something up here. <laughs> I and, hop. Yeah, and everyone's flying in. Then maybe that's what I was thinking. Everyone's flying in on September, you know, twentieth, and we're gonna. <laughs> is that a date? I don't know. I'm just pulling out <laughs> dates here, and I feel like I just chose one. Okay. Anyways, and then we're gonna settle this. We're going to here, and they they probably yeah, send so it off. It sounds very like Southern Baptist Convention style, right. where everyone's going to meet at a specific time, specific location. We're gonna have notes beforehand here's our here's our schedule here's the the itinerary of the whole time we're together here's how we're going to do this right and by the end of this we're going to come out with this thing that's not what happened here well yes and no there were some there were many councils i mean people are most familiar probably with the council of nicaea um, which i'm actually not going to focus on in this episode um because we i think people have who have heard of the council of nicaea have kind of been told that that's where the canon was formed but Actually, it was not quite that, um, and there's a lot of resources out there. But there is that were, where we get like the Nicene Creed that happened at that council? Partially, yes. Okay. But the, I mean, the councils are just not as black and white as you know they sound, and they were, and I mean something to that we have to take into consideration. And I'm going to come back to this at the end of the episode because I think it's a really big deal. Is just just the basic underlying assumption here that you could have a council that represents all of Christianity. Like even well, I was going to joke because you said these yeah. councils were not very black and white, right? But they sound pretty white. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking 3rd, 4th century. So, I Where mean, though? who's white? Uh, I mean, somewhere in the Roman Empire. I mean, most were in the Roman Empire, but I mean, somewhere in Jerusalem, somewhere in Alexandria. Oh. So, those okay. I mean, Constantinople. Like a lot of it's really more it's a mix of Middle East and then yeah. I don't I I mean, race was a different category back then too. So, mm. Okay, but okay. appreciate your joke. But but what I but the other joke, I mean, the other weird thing here is just yeah, the idea that you could have a council that represents all Christians when I mean that would be impossible today. And much less I mean in the 1st century, you don't even have the the same ability to communicate. I mean, there could have been whole sects of Christians that were out in the desert somewhere that's nobody knew about. And those they didn't get included or represented in these mm. councils. So so, I mean, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I mean, I think we just have to keep in mind that even the early church fathers that we're quoting here and that we're going to be looking at through the rest of this episode, we kind of act like they represent all of Christianity because they were the leaders of the largest Christian movement of the first three or four centuries after Jesus. And that ended up becoming the Catholic Church, which ended up becoming what is, I mean, Catholic means universal. So they're kind of claiming like we are the Christian church. And to, for the most part, they are like the Catholic church. And then, you know, eventually split into the Catholic and Protestant. Like if you were to take all Catholics and Protestant Christians like that, for most people, that is all of Christianity. But in the first few centuries, that wasn't all of, I mean, there was no Catholic church. There were there were Gnostic Christians, and there were Christians who were, you know, going off into the desert. There were Christians who were following Mary Magdalene. We have hints of this. And so, like, history, 
I, people have, we've used this phrase many times, history belongs to the winners. And I mean, I think that's just as true of Christianity as pretty much anywhere else in that, you know, there may not have been a war that was fought at this point, but the people with the power and the people who were the most popular, that's, those are the people that ended up forming the Christian canon. Does that mean that they are evil? Absolutely not. Like, I think sometimes when you start talking about that and you're like, are you saying that all the people who formed the canon, it was just, you know, they're... But it can, it can mean that perspectives were lost. Yeah. And, you know, and we, it's we've not talked... completely representative. And we've talked in, um, like, the woman series that we did months back about Mary Magdalene and where did, where did she go? Where did the woman mm. that anointed Jesus, where'd she go, right? Mm. This, these things are <laughs> remo- or the, removed. Or the Ethiopian um, who, you know, Philip and the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian who Philip met, who went back to Ethiopia with the gospel. Where did he go? I mean, there's a whole, I mean, that's one of the largest Christian groups that's not Catholic or Protestant is Ethiopian Orthodox. I mean, there are groups of Christianity. I mean, it's his tradition tells us that was it Mark or Matthew? One of these uh, went to India and hmm. finished his days there and started Christianity there. So it's... Where's that? Yeah. Hmm. Might still be out there. It might not even know that there's a, any other form of Christianity. It's probably not called Christianity wherever it is. Anyway, now I'm getting... Now I'm just spiraling into cool ideas in my head. But wow. but get, to get back to... Uh, that was just the overview of kind of a bit of what we're going to talk about. But we can get into, because I was laying the foundation for we're talking about these criteria, but criteria is not really the appropriate way of thinking about it because it's more of a retrospective, that's the word I was trying to get earlier. It's a retrospective term that we're using while looking back. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because I've been thinking about the, just that last thing. I got I to gotta say it. So it could be that there is another <laughs> religion out there that we would call, that Christians would call another religion that is actually based on Jesus. Yeah. I, in theory. I mean, I don't know that this well, is just ever... even the one you said about who went to India. Uh, I, one of the disciples or it's Jude. Oh man. Some, I'm sure there's someone listening to this episode. who's like, I know who it is, but I just can't remember. It's one of the disciples tradition says went to mm. India. And that's fascinating. It's fascinating to think that there could be little, starts of other things who knows what they mm-hmm. what they are what they're called today and um that they could have their roots in some of this stuff anyways okay i'm just yeah mine. try to say what i'm thinking about yeah and that was the one you were trying to move on and i was still mm-hmm. thinking about that so just i mean it's i i to, to continue to play out that scenario because i i trained as a bible translator so in for years of my life i envisioned i was going to be walking through mountains of Nepal or Tibet and introducing Christianity to people through translating scriptures. And I mean, so I, you know, I can't help but just daydream about, yeah, what if you were to find a a small unreached people group fairly disconnected from the rest of the Western world and you start to, you know, learn about their religion and it just sounds, you know, remotely, I mean, it would probably be vastly different, but you know, maybe the name of the person would be like, huh, that sounds kind of like, I mean, it would be in a different language, so it might not even sound like Jesus. I mean, how crazy would that be if you're learning about this figure of their religion that under a different name and you slowly kind of realize this person sure reminds me of of Jesus mm. in mind. But then in some ways they wouldn't 
you know, they'd probably have different stories of this figure of theirs mm. doing different things. And yet the only reason that theirs would be considered inferior to ours is numbers and history. Mm. Wow. That's, that's a pretty fascinating um, mental experiment. Sounds like a experiment. Feature, a motion picture waiting to be made. Yeah. The missionary goes <sighs> Finds to their the own unreached religion. group to bring them this thing. And as they, I mean, because I have a lot of friends doing that. And the ones, uh, you know, what you start out doing is just learning and, you know, getting into mm-hmm. the, into the group and immersion immersion and you're you're studying right and so during that studying you know, just every day you're coming back you're translating the things you just heard and you're like oh my goodness this is like and you can eventually one day you'd be like wait did, did, did they just say blessed are the poor be like this sounds like mm. something i've heard before wow okay yeah. and you wonder how many of these things were influencing each other you know just even some of the major religions in the world when you learn about certain aspects of different religions and you're like wow that's you know there's a there's some threads here that are consistent and are tied together yeah you just wonder and is that these were all all these religions i mean were kind of they interacted with each other they had to have um people would have interacted with others and you know you pick up things or you change a little bit or you give a little bit here or you take a little bit there anyways wow well, I did not see that coming, but that was a really interesting thought to explore. Thanks for going back to it. Yeah, we explore everything here. We we go down each rabbit hole to and see where up it each mountainside. Yeah, to see where we go. All right, back to the back to the story. Well, with that, I guess we can actually start getting into the three criteria that we're gonna talk about. Um, so the first of those is apostolicity, um, which essentially means is it authored by an apostle. That's the simplest way of putting it. It gets a little bit fuzzy. I mean, some of the basic questions when you just start with that question, is it authored by an apostle, is, okay, who counts as an apostle? And traditionally, that is the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Paul. I mean, also Matthias, is that the name of the guy they got? But he doesn't really show up. The guy who's added in Acts to replace Judas, he never really shows up after mm-hmm. that. So Paul is the more... Paul is the... The one who's added in, who d- did not actually follow Jesus as a disciple. I probably riffed on this a bit already in past episodes because it's one of my personal pet peeves. So is this because of the meeting on the road to Damascus? Is that how he gets in? I guess. Um, I mean, I think he just became considered an apostle because he became such a prominent leader. But I mean, people who've studied Paul specifically would know yeah. more than me on that. But. I, Personally, if I was going to be, you know, creating some criteria, would be, would probably not consider Paul an equal representative of Jesus' teachings as one of the disciples. But that is my opinion 2,000 years later. Paul was considered an apostle, is still considered an apostle by most Christians historically. So he gets um, included. So all of his letters, which make up most of the New Testament, um, everything from you know Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and on, and then also works that are attributed to him, like First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Those get included under kind of that criteria of him being an apostle. Other examples are obviously a text like Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples, Levi. 
Um, it's at least attributed to him. It, he may not have actually written it. And as we've talked about in previous ep- episodes, that's just common practice um, for texts to be attributed to someone. It's not, it wasn't like anyone was trying to deceive or forge. It's, that was just common practice. But then there are a lot of texts in the New Testament that you might be thinking about that don't satisfy this criteria of apostolicity, of being written by an apostle. So one of those, a simple one could be Mark. Uh, Mark was not an apostle, but scholars believe that Mark was close friends with Peter and that his gospel was written under the influence of Peter. So it kind of Mm. gets that a bit. Luke, similarly, um, Luke was close friends with Paul and so kind of gets some of that attribution as well. But so we quickly see that these criteria are not hard and firm in any way. Um, And some of them are actually kind of not applicable at all. So one example I want to look at is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't have any author attribution at the beginning or end. So there's no claim at all. No knowledge of who wrote this book. So kind of at the beginning, the church attributed it to Paul. There was just this idea that Paul was behind it. But even early on, there was some dispute about that. Um, Actually, so Origen, who is an early church father, Origen with an E, um, he he died in the third century and he wrote a book about the book of Hebrews, or he taught about about the book of Hebrews. And we don't have his exact, like his book and his teachings, but his teachings were quoted by Eusebius, another um, historian, who wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History. And this is how, it sounds complicated, I'm saying all these names and texts, but this is how we get a lot of our information about what happened early on, is just um, early church fathers who wrote and taught and then were quoted by other early church fathers as they were writing and teaching. So sometimes we don't have entire texts or, you know, sermons of a certain person, but we have um, quotes of them by other church fathers. So Eusebius quotes Origen talking about the book of Hebrews around the third century, and I'm just going to read what Origen said about the text uh, and about it being attributed to Paul. Obviously, he did not write in English, but this is in English for all of us. He says, If I gave my opinion, I should say that the thoughts are those of the apostle, meaning the apostle Paul, but the style and composition belonged to someone who remembered the apostle's teaching and wrote down at his leisure what had been said by his teacher. Therefore, if any church holds that this epistle is by Paul, let it be commended for this also, for it is not without reason that the men of old time have handed it down as Paul's, but who wrote the epistle in truth, only God knows. So again, this was a church father origin in the third century, dis- dialoguing and discussing whether the book of Hebrews is written by Paul, kind of acknowledging essentially that we don't know and that it actually doesn't seem like it's written by Paul, but it, the the message behind it seems like something that Paul might have taught. So, so that was a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Um, another one that I want to touch on is the book of Revelation. The author, you know, we, when I was growing up, I was told that it was the apostle John who wrote it, like the beloved disciple. And um, because it does say John in the intro to the text or at the end of the text. Yeah, I just assumed it was the same guy. Right. So we just assume it's the same guy. And I think even in my little, you know, NIV adventure Bible, I think I made some cross references from the Gospel of John and Revelation. I was like, see, it's the same person. Mm-hmm. But um, the author never claims to be the Apostle John. And John of Patmos is considered to be a 
different person historically, academically from the apostles. So I bring that up to say Revelation is again one of those texts that doesn't necessarily satisfy that apostle apostolicity criteria. Um, but it's part of a, a very popular apocalyptic genre, which included other texts like Daniel and First Enoch, which is a, a popular text um, of the Hebrew Bible, but not included in the, well, which was a popular text among the, the Jewish people of the Second Temple period, but not included in the Hebrew Bible. So those are two books we just talked about, Hebrews and Revelation, that we have in our canon, and they, they don't quite satisfy that criteria of apostolicity. But it's interesting that there are actually other texts out there that are attributed directly to apostles that we don't have in our canon. And one of those is the Apocalypse of Peter. Um, and the, the simple explanation is, you know, most people, most scholars would agree that it was not actually written by Peter, and even the early church fathers would have assumed that it was not actually written by Peter. But I just bring it up to say that just because something was attributed to an apostle didn't mean that it would automatically get somehow included. Um, but the Apocalypse of Peter was actually accepted as canonical scripture in a lot of churches in the second and third centuries, um, and kind of eventually went out of use and um, started to be more and more rejected in canon collections. But um, this text that most of us have never heard of, this Apocalypse of Peter, it's, um, I mean, you can tell by the word apocalypse, it kind of has to do with um, otherworldly, afterlife style, end of the world sort of themes. So this particular text focuses on heaven and hell and this dichotomy and the, the bliss of heaven and the tortures of hell. And that created an influence, even in just the second and third centuries, that by the time the text itself went more or less out of disuse and was no longer in the canon, it had already influenced Christian perceptions of heaven and hell mm. to the point where, I mean, that's essentially what is reflected in Dante's Divine Comedy, This, which is very influential in how culturally Western Christianity sees hell, that the theology of that is kind of derivative from this apocalypse of Peter. Even something that eventually did not end up in our canon still ended up influencing some of our most important doctrines. And I just think that's kind of fascinating. Wow. Yeah. You, and you can't undo the influence, right? Yeah. Like you can, something can like grow out of favor and, or, or you just like out of popularity and it's not, doesn't make it into, you know, the bound Bible that we have, but it is there in interpretation. It is there in. Yeah. You've been influenced by right. the apocalypse of Peter without even having ever heard of it. Right. So you might say like, no, that doesn't go, that doesn't belong in the Bible. It's like, it is in your Bible because what is the Bible? The Bible is these collection of texts, but it's also years and decades and centuries of interpretation. Hmm. And you can't, uh, you know, like when I was born, I wasn't just given these words as a blank slate. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't have a blank slate and then these words were just handed to me and I had to figure out what to, like I was handed them I was given them through interpretation and that interpretation and everyone was right everyone was over the years over the centuries and that interpretation is built by things that aren't even in the Bible it's influenced by things that aren't even in the Bible mm -hmm. that's helpful and important to know I think yeah and I think that continues to happen today with influences um, whether it's political or 
um, authors like you know C.S. Lewis, who people who have influenced the way that we read scripture, and they're not considered like an inspired, um, divinely authorized um, writer or teacher, but their teachings have actually influenced the way we read the supposedly word of God. Yeah. And sometimes it's the other way around too. Like, right. Like the, uh, you might get a negative influence that makes you go a different direction. Like the left behind movies, right. Or like <laughs> veggie tales or like something like that, where a lot of Christians now would go, that's not, that's not the picture of the end times. Right. That's mm-hmm. not it. And in fact, it's, and they'll, they'll come back to like a, they'll further root themselves in something opposite to something you see in culture, even if it's a depiction of supposedly Christian, you know, tradition or Christian story. Uh, it's just interesting. I mean, everything is a response to something that's going on, right? And uh, yeah. Um, yeah, to wrap up our point on apostolicity, I just kind of want to point out that um, it's happening, like the, the formation of the New Testament canon was happening at a really tricky point in history um, as far as authorship goes. And we've talked a lot about how um, when, for thousands of years, especially kind of before this time, and as the as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, those scriptures that were slowly formed over centuries and centuries with people writing and editing and slowly adapting and morphing and uh, reading and then letting other texts go and the others. Like, it's it was such a long process for the texts of the Hebrew Bible compared to a very short composition time frame. I mean, if one of the criteria is apostolicity, then you by nature can't have any texts that are more than one generation out. Mm-hmm. And so what makes it tricky is that when you look at the the long process of the Hebrew Bible, authorship really isn't important. What's important is the tradition. Like, I mean, we essentially don't know who wrote most of the Old Testament, even the ones that are attributed to a certain author. That's, it's not, that's not really as important. It's, it's history and things that the, the Jewish people have told and told and told over and over again. Someone finally put pen to paper. It's, that's the kind of the, the mm. idea of it. Whereas Christianity is different because, for one, and I think that most apologists would back us up on this, the, the eyewitness nature of like a need for a resurrection kind of makes the authorship a little bit more important. Like that these people actually be right about what they're saying. Like there's not really, they're not really Divinity given. and resurrection. Yeah. Which is kind of, they go hand in hand. But yeah, both of those things. Like, did it happen or not? Yeah. Is did the miracles happen? Was right. he really? Although, I mean, even that claim that like the resurrection and the divinity are essential. Like that's, that's a certain branch of Christianity that saying those are essential happens to be the one that all of us have come from because it kind of became what defined Christianity in Catholicism and then now Protestantism. But there were other branches of Christianity that saw those things differently. So not every Christian necessarily would say that the resurrection has to at least include a literal bodily resurrection that Jesus is alive somewhere in his body. Like not every Christian believes that because not every Christian believes that that's what the texts were teaching or that's what the early church was teaching. But that's not what this episode is about. Okay. Well, we got to get, <laughs> I mean, we got to save that maybe for utterly heretical sometime or something because okay. I want to really dive into that more. So. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot out there on just different ways to interpret the resurrection. Um, well, yeah, sure. But I want to know about the, like, if we look back in history and where did these, you know, like, where did these come from? 
Did, were they right there from the beginning? Did they split off a different? I want to know more about that. So we can, uh, if you don't know about Utterly Heretical, by the way, maybe it's a good time <laughs> to plug. We have a second podcast where we go even farther down in some of these rabbit holes. We tell more stories. We share more of our experiences and we just kind of let it happen. Um, and seems like everyone really, really loves that. So that's Utterly Heretical. Um, it's part of our, if you're a patron of the show, you get that. And you can go to almostheretical.com and you'll find links there to take part in that. Yeah, well, can't wait to see you on Utterly Heretical. It is a lot of fun and maybe we'll talk about this sometime soon. But, um, so I just, all that to wrap up the thought that the New Testament is being written in a very strange time as far as it is an author important or not. I mean, we see that it is important to these early church fathers who are writing back and forth about who wrote such and such book. Was it Paul or was it not? But even Origen in the quote we read, he's saying essentially, I don't think that it was written by Paul, but close enough, essentially. Uh, it sounds like teachings of Paul. So authorship is still not as important to them as maybe it would be today, where, and you know, we're in a culture where if you say First, Second Timothy and Titus weren't written by Paul, people are like, what are you talking about? This well, is- we're in a culture today where you know, it's very, any video you see online, it's very mm. up in the air whether or not That it's really real. happened. This <laughs> yeah. is the guy who was showing me Bigfoot videos this morning. Oh, I, oh. can we do a whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> really heretical on Bigfoot <laughs> and how it lines up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, well, you know, the Bigfoot, but there's also, and this was like seven, eight years ago, there was the technology existed to take, uh, have a computer read speeches by mm. Barack Obama watch speeches by Barack Obama, the video, and then create a create the ability to input any text you want, any text you want, and have Barack Obama say those words. And I watched those videos. You should go Google it. I can't remember who did the who did it, but like go Google it. Yikes. Something about like Barack Obama fake speech or something like that. And it it looks real. And that was eight years ago. I mean the technology is a lot better now. And that's the direction we're going. We're going even further into the direction of we're going to have to have computers and AI that's going to be able to distinguish, to help us distinguish what is real and what is uh, a hoax online, what's a fake video online, because we're not going to be able to tell as humans. We're going to need to have AI tell. (laughs) So AI is going to have to figure out what the AI does. If you can tell, I love going down. Come on the next utterly, here's another plug. Come on the next utterly heretical call. Maybe we'll talk about AI and how it's going to impact Christianity and the church at some point. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll get there. (laughs) Um, That's part of the Patreon experience as well. So these are, this, always having to have your guard up about information coming in. And is it, is someone trying to get me? You know, is someone trying Mm. to trick me here? Because there's a big advantage now in our day and age to being able to convince someone you know there's fake news i mean there's all this stuff is going on that was not prevalent right and so it's just a different it's a whole different different experience whole different world um so when you when you say you know titus timothy like those weren't written by paul that's a big deal to us but it wasn't a big deal right but it is interesting to me and maybe the other nerds out there, I don't know, how this specific time in history around the first, second, and third centuries was such a huge transition in like literary authorship, attribution, and what that all meant. I mean, even the quotes that we're reading from Origen and Eusebius, nobody really disputes who wrote those. Like, And those are only a couple hundred years 
after these New Testament texts. So it's just, it's just interesting. And I'm sure there's a lot of implications that come from the fact that, that this is happening at a time that's kind of a conflict between an attributive authorship culture and a culture that is suddenly starting to care more and more about like exact authorship. It's just a unique time in history and it happens to be the one where the New Testament is formed in a very, very short amount of time. All right, well, I think we're ready to move on to our second criteria, which is that of Catholicity, which, um, again, the word Catholic, even though it's very much associated with this branch of Christianity, the word Catholic just means universal. So the criteria of Catholicity is, is this uh, a text that is essentially universally accepted by the churches? Is it something that's being used by pretty much everyone? Or is it something that's only being used by a handful of churches here or there? So fairly simple um, criteria. So like the Gospels, hands down, everyone's using those. But were there other Gospels that weren't But included? yes, there were other Gospels that were maybe only being used by certain Gnostic Christians or certain, you know, Christians in Ethiopia. I don't know. But I mean, something like the Gospel of Thomas existed, but didn't end up being one of these that was considered. Uh, it was actually somewhat widespread, but I think just not as widespread as the others. And I've heard you say this before, but talk a little bit about what that meant that it was not, in- I still think that's really difficult for people, you know, for people, maybe people that don't listen to the show, it might be others, maybe our friends, family, that kind of thing. But like a book that was like, no, this one didn't quote unquote, make it. it help me, help us think about that differently. What does that mean by not, you know, it didn't make it into the, like, is this a lower tier? Is this something you shouldn't be read? Like, what mm. is that? Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think we'll get there a little bit when we talk about orthodoxy. But yeah, when I say a text that didn't make it, I think we can picture, you know, a council, again, sitting there with like a big stack of texts. And they're like, all right, we're just going to determine which ones are bad and which ones are good. And we'll keep the, keep the good and get rid of the bad. But that's not how the process went. But there is an element in which I mean, we go back to some of these earliest um, collections, these earliest codexes of the New Testament or the entire Christian Bible, and it has a table of contents with a list of books. And the earliest ones have some additional books to what we currently have. So it might have the Shepherd of Hermas or the Epistle of Barnabas, and those eventually kind of fell out. But I don't think there's any Christian... New Testament collection in a rather official kind of codex that includes the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So, like, there were just some that didn't make even that kind of initial cut, and then there were others that did and and eventually fell away, and others that have remained. So, it was a it's never all in one moment kind of a process. But I'm glad that you brought that up because yes, it's a good reminder that a lot of the texts that um, aren't currently in the New Testament they're not somehow bad texts. I mean, some were rejected based on being unorthodox, which is the next criteria we're going to look at. But a lot of them were not included simply because they, a lot of them just weren't popular enough, which is the criteria we're talking about right now, Catholicity. They weren't widespread. They weren't being used by enough people. Let's see. I'm going to 
actually read a quote from St. Augustine. We've all heard of him. Okay. Um, he wrote, he was writing about this idea of Catholicity and which texts should be used based on which churches. So this is what he says, just kind of another interesting way, interesting glimpse into the minds of the people who were setting this about. And this is around the 4th or 5th century. He says, They will hold, therefore, to this standard with the canonical scriptures, that they will put those accepted by all the Catholic churches before those which some do not accept. Among these which are not accepted by all, they will prefer those accepted by most of them, and by the greater ones among them, to those which fewer churches and ones of lesser authority regard as canonical. Should they, however, discover that different ones are held to be canonical by the majority of the churches from those so regarded by the greater churches, though this would be very unlikely, I consider that both should be regarded as having equal authority. Okay, to break apart that quote a little bit, essentially he's, Augustine is saying, when you're looking at this, at the scriptures, the things that we're deciding to hold as scripture, they should take those that have been accepted. I mean, the ones that have been ac- accepted by essentially all the churches, that's just a hands down obvious, we're going to use those. And that's right. things like the Gospels and most of the letters of Paul. But then he's saying when there's a dispute and there's some that aren't accepted by some churches and are accepted by other churches, he says that priority should obviously be given just to the majority. Like if there's, you know, a few churches that disagree, but most of them agree, then you go with that. But then he also gives weight to the greater churches he mentioned in there. And by that, the, the, at his at his point in history, there's these churches, specifically the ones in Rome, in Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Constantinople are kind of considered like these b- huge hubs of Christianity. And if right. the, the church in Rome, in, in all of those places, is accepting of a certain document, but, you know, scattered churches throughout disagree, then you would consider those churches to have bigger weight toward the decision. It is fascinating, though, because... That's fine, right, for what we're including in this. But, like, I'm also interested to know what did some of these, you know, if it was a dissenting voice or something like that. I mean, how many times in history has there been a dissenting voice that was the Actually, right voice? Yeah. <laughs> or the the one that, even just, let's get away from this right and wrong, but the one that resonated more with people. Or maybe it would resonate more with our time that we're living in. And whatever it is. But, like, I would just love to to have it all included, you know, instead of this having things cut out. I understand why why it is, but um yeah, just even when you say that, like I I can appreciate these the the guidelines here or the criteria, but it's just fascinating that it it we always we tend to go with the majority, right? And and mm-hmm. often that that gets you the right, you know, the most upvoted comment, right? I mean, we often live in a democracy, get, so yeah. hopefully majority helps, right. but right, but there I mean, this is why prophets exist. This is why dissenting opinions exist. Um, so the majority is not always right. Right. Yeah, and I mean, the, the clear question, I think, that should come out of talking about this criteria of Catholicity and, you know, so usage, widespread usage, is, I mean, essentially, are we just saying that the church determines the canon? That, like, the majority of the church just decides what mm. they want the scripture to be? Um, and I think in a sense... Yes, but not necessarily arbitrarily. Like, again, that's one of those statements that could maybe make it sound like we're trying to paint a, this super bad picture of, like, the church. The church just chose what they wanted. But, I mean, they are doing so with a lot of caution and care and trying to value 
tradition and and while you know sure there's there's a bit of a danger of just this majority rules mentality there's also the reality that the criteria of catholicity kind of just accepts the texts that have already been accepted like they're essentially saying okay it's been two three hundred years since these texts were written which ones have stuck like which ones are considered useful by most christians and i mean that's that's a fairly reasonable thing to consider is like okay this text has really stuck around and people in you know far reaching ends of the empire are using the same text in their churches regularly like that that should hold some weight it's yeah it's, it feels similar to like uh one of these collected nursery rhyme books or something like that it's like you're going out to get that book for your kid and you kind of want it to have all the ones. Like, you know, I want the nursery rhymes. You know, like the ones that everyone will know. I want those to be in there. Jack, be nimble. Jack, right. be quick. I was hoping you were... I didn't have any in my head. So I was like, <laughs> I hope she comes in here with, <laughs> with a few. Come on. You rattle off a couple more. Oh, boy. I mean, on the mother goose, the little the hen that cow jumped over the moon. Uh, I mean, Hansel and Gretel? That's not... That's a, that's a whole story. That's a fairy See, this tale. Is why I did, okay, this is why I didn't do it. Anyways, you see what I'm saying. You want to go out and get this book. You want it to have, you know, the classics in there, quote unquote, the classics, whatever those kind of are. We know the ones that have made it, that have been passed down. You I think want those you're in thinking of fairy tales. But Maybe. That's okay. <laughs> oh, so these are more like like it's kind of like a poem. Yeah, usually yeah. a couple lines. Yeah. Okay. What I'm thinking of actually is the, from the office Dwight's cautionary tales for children, oh, where like yeah. if you if you uh, suck your thumb, then this guy comes with scissors to cut. Yeah, it's it's funny. oh gosh. it's like if it's a real German book. Anyways, uh, of cautionary tales. <laughs> it sounds like it. Probably yeah. some relative of the Brothers Grimm. Heinrich, someone. Anyways. Um. It feels kind of like that, though. It feels kind of like it's not. It's it's like looking around and saying, if I'm going to compile this book, compiling these nursery rhymes, what are the ones that have made it? What are the ones people want to mm-hmm. see? What are the ones people are you know using and telling their kids? Like I'll put those in the in in this collection. Yeah, and uh, it's not saying all the other ones are bad or wrong. It's just like I'm I trying mean, to compile the ones that people are using. I'm trying to compile the ones people like. Yeah, and I mean, if we were going to com- make a Christmas album, or like, what are the songs that? You have to have on there or people are going to be like, wait, what? You didn't have Jingle Bells? You didn't have Silent Night? You know, it's just these are the ones that, you know, there's probably 10 Christmas songs that are like staples. And then there's others that come and go. And, you know, Santa Baby did not exist very long ago. But well, this happens. This actually happens. I just you saying the Christmas album got me thinking about the greatest hits album for any band. Right. They'll do their the greatest hits or the anthology or the the last 20 years of you know, U2 or whatever, like the, and some of these bands have multiple compilation albums where they thought they were going to be done as a band. <laughs> and then they're like, Oh shoot, we, we toured for 10 more years. Um, but they will, they'll put the, the hits, the ones, mm. you know, the ones that fans are requesting at the, at the concerts, like they'll try to compile it. But then every time what happens is they come, they put the, you know, the, uh, best of album out there. And then someone's like, you didn't put, why didn't you put on, yeah. you know, whatever song they want, mm. you know? Because everyone has a different, <laughs> and in that one group, they really liked that. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the song. That was the U2 song. You know, but for these other people, it was these. So other the New Testament is really just Christianity's greatest hits. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, yeah, and somebody had to put it together, or a group of people over a long period of time. But I mean, that's a fairly good analogy. Other than we're not talking about you know divine authority or anything like that. One but. more book. One more book. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's kind of the criteria of Catholicity. Um, it's, 
at the same time, maybe somewhat concerning this kind of majority rules mm-hmm. idea, but then also somewhat reasonable in the sense of what are the things that have withstood time and that are being considered worthwhile by most churches. So there you go. So moving into our last criteria, which is orthodoxy, uh, it's which is essentially, does it line up with Christian doctrine? Is it consistent with what we consider to be true, we as Christians? Which is an interesting, interesting thing to yes, say. Yes, you're already seeing it's some like, potential issues here. Does the truth line up with the truth? <laughs> does the, you know what I mean? Because this is the thing that we're looking to, and maybe that's, maybe that's part of the difference here, is that now we're like, this the words in this text are the only truth, right? Not our experience of God, not the you know experience of the Holy Spirit. Or depends on what denomination you're in, right? Sure. But you know, a lot a large part it's. But we need to come back to the foundation, which is these words. And so to say, do these words line up with what we believe these words say? Is kind of like that's sort of what we're. Well, what saying, it points right? out is that that's not how they were seeing it back then. Like they were sure they were they already had some set doctrine i mean some of its creeds apostles creed nicene creeds and then some of it's just this known like almost unstated but just assumed rules about what christianity is so like the divinity of christ was probably one of those for the majority of christianity i mean it definitely was one of those and so they were basing the their truth not on these texts Although it was clearly informed by these texts, because I mean, by the third, fourth centuries, these people—that's how these people knew about Christianity was, well, from these texts and from tradition that had been taught them. Which actually brings up a good point about—you'll read all throughout the New Testament, mostly in the letters of Paul—these um, exhortations to hold fast to the the faith that was given you, or hold fast to the tradition. And so you already you're already seeing these kind of. Um, claims to some kind of standard or doctrine or truth that you're supposed to not veer away from, which, you know, how in our minds, you know, you go back to the Bible to make sure you're not veering away from, but like they didn't have the Bible when those texts were written. So, so they're holding fast and their foundation isn't Mm. the texts. It's, it's a, a truth that's beyond the texts and before the texts. Yeah, that's good. Very interesting. But anyway, the, the criteria of orthodoxy, like, you, the, the Gospels do kind of set orthodoxy in a lot of ways. Like, they are the foundation of how most people in- accepted and understood Jesus and what he taught, and then Paul. Um, so, mostly, the, so the criteria of orthodoxy wouldn't have been used on those, because they're already just so authoritative. So, it was mostly used on more uncertain documents and kind of smaller texts and figuring out what they're worth. Um, but as we talk about orthodoxy, I kind of want to point out there's like three different categories of of how something could be treated. One, it could be orthodox and canon. I mean, and that's just the obvious. That's everything that's in our New Testament was considered orthodox in line with Christian faith and then eventually became part of the canon. You could also have unorthodox and not canon, which is, for example, the the Gospel of Peter. Um, there's an interesting story about this this church at Rossus, I think it was pronounced, or Rosus, um, kind of the Greek-speaking world. And they were, this, this particular church um, was very influenced by the Gospel of Peter. And this is kind of early on, second, third century. There's no official, you know, that text 
was totally up for grabs and up for use. And nobody was saying that there was necessarily anything wrong with that text, this Gospel of Peter. But um, one of the church leaders, Serapion, I believe was his name, he ended up um, going and visiting this church in Rosas and and just noticing that things were kind of getting off and like going askew and um, had these, he had big concerns about how the people in the church were starting to function. And he kind of, he ended up taking the gospel of Peter and like rereading it and reanalyzing it and feeling like the theology was pretty off. And so they ended up determining that to be unorthodox and it kind of fell out of use Hmm. from there. So that's an example, unorthodox and then no longer used as scripture, no, no longer canon. But, there's a third category, and this is kind of what we were talking about before, that I think is important, is texts that are orthodox, but not canon, which is a lot of texts, meaning texts that are not in our New Testament, but were just right. fine. They right. weren't dangerous. They weren't considered anti-Christianity or somehow teaching something crazy. Um, so, I mean, a, a big one is the Shepherd of Hermas, which I mentioned a couple times. I was actually in the New Testament for quite a while and then just kind of slowly fell out, or the Epistle of Barnabas. Or there's something like the Gospel of Thomas that people debate, you know, is it Gnostic in its teaching or is it not? But it was, I mean, if you read it, it's it's staggeringly similar to most of the teachings we find of Jesus in, in Mark and Matthew and Luke. So um, it wasn't necessarily condemned for being unorthodox, it was just not put in the canon. So I bring that up all again to just say that something can be orthodox and good and true and helpful and not be in the canon. So when you're reading, you know, you see some headline about some new gospel or some new text of the ancient world or that, you know, there there's the Pauline letter, the epistle to Laodicea or all these texts that were written around that time. And we just have this attitude that they're, oh, well, they're not in the Bible for a reason and they're probably dangerous. Mm-hmm. And sure, they probably aren't in there for a reason, but it might not be that they were dangerous. It might just be that they weren't as popular at the time, or the author was a woman. <laughs> That's my personal... I mean, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene didn't seem to make it anywhere except the places, the few places it was copied. So, um, more on that wow. in yeah. every episode. I feel like I slowly get back there <laughs> every time. But definitely the woman series. Yes, yeah. definitely the woman series. Um, yeah, so that's kind of orthodoxy. So, we've overviewed these three main criteria, apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy. So as we start to wrap up, uh, I think the biggest question is, what do we do with this knowledge? Um, Well, that's what I was going to ask, is like, if you could imagine someone from this period where it was sort of up in the air and they were figuring it out and they were writing letters to each other, about, you know, this book or that book, or, you know, I think this one, like you, like you mentioned with some of those books, they were like, you know, writing. we see these early church fathers writing these letters and deciding, right. And these councils and you imagine someone, maybe one of the more prominent people from that coming to a, a modern church today and seeing how we're using this bound book that we have, the Bible. What do you feel like would be on their three points for their sermon that they would preach mm-hmm. to that church. Um, I think depending on which church father it is, I mean, they'd probably, first of all, just be thrilled that this religion is still intact yeah. 2000 years later. Um, but I think, yeah, they would probably start to wonder like, did you guys hear about any of these other 
texts? Like, are you aware of the larger picture here? Like, this, these aren't the only sources of information that we have about Jesus. But they'd probably still be thrilled. They'd probably be a little surprised at the simplistic attitude that we have toward, you know, even like we were just saying that, all right, if the letter says that it was written by Paul, then it was written by Paul. And then, you know, you just, you hear these sermons where it's like, well, clearly this verse was influenced by Paul's time on on the boat that crashed. And it's like, okay, well, this author wasn't actually Paul. So we're really stretching it when we start to, you know, mm-hmm. attribute these events from Paul's life to First Timothy. Like, there's just, those connections didn't necessarily right. exist. So um, one of those ancient church fathers would probably notice those and wonder why we're not like they, I mean, wouldn't that be strange if they thought that we were the simple ones <laughs> 2000 I mean, years later? I the, mean, we well, are. Yeah. I mean, you brought, we talked earlier, like who, who is the more intelligent? I mean, there's no way that we are more intelligent than hardly anyone. Yeah, we have more information. Right. But we, we do less with the more information <laughs> yeah. that we have though. Right. And you talk about some of these people, I mean, the amount that they had memorized mm. and, I mean, here's another bunny trail for you, right? I don't think we understand just how <laughs> how much these devices, the internet, hmm. this information at the tip of our finger, how dumb that's making us. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of another word. I mean, it is... I mean, we don't even know phone numbers anymore. Right. I turn on the map to get to a place I know how to get to. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Why do you do that? <laughs> oh, now we're entering into a therapy session here. <laughs> I think it comes from, no, uh, I think I do that, that. Well, okay. Depends. If it's like a long journey, I'll, I'll turn on, I'll use the, I'll use Waze, the app Waze, W-A-Z-E, because it has. This is not a paid promotion. <laughs> we're not sponsored by Waze. We're sponsored by listeners like you. Uh, I'll turn it on because it'll tell you where police officers are, hazards on oh, the road, okay, that, okay. that kind of thing. So like for a road trip, I'll do that. Okay. But why do I turn it on to get to a store that I know how to get to? I mean, I usually don't, but sometimes I will. And that those, I'm like, why am I doing this? You mm. know, I think it's just to be sure, right? Because you don't trust yourself. Mm. And that's, I think, the biggest, one of the biggest issues with all this is you don't trust yourself. You know, it used to be you'd have a conversation with someone. Maybe this ties in here. Let's see. You'd have a conversation with someone and they'd go, like, I think... I think this country was the, actually the first, they were the first to adopt that. And I'd go, I think actually it was, I think it was this other place. I think, and, and you'd go, you'd have to have a discussion. Well, how do you know the information that you know? And they would share about, because I read this thing. And, um, and they said, oh, okay, because I read this. I think what they was getting at was this other thing. And you'd, you'd realize the miss, now what we do is we just, one of them pulls out the phone and be like, and just Google it, figure out what's the correct answer, mm. right? So always knowing the correct answer. I think you don't often get some of that, I don't want to say debate, but the dialogue and the back and forth. And and that can happen even in, uh, I guess, when you come to the biblical texts, right? These, these uh, This library of scripture that we have, you know, you say in this culture where we want to know the answer. We want to know not, not what does this person think and what does this person think. We want to know what's the right one. What's the right way to think about this, right? And maybe that comes a little bit from having so much information. We have an abundance of information. We have too much information. And now it becomes about organizing and sorting and ranking the information that we mm-hmm. do have. Whereas maybe you're in a time where you're kind of just looking around and saying, what are the things that have risen to the top here? What are the things, you can only remember a certain amount of things in your brain. So what are the ones that most people still remember? What are the things that are important? That's getting at sort of more the Hebrew Bible, I think. What are the things, what are the stories that we've been telling for thousands of years, 
right? But I think even so, when we look at the New Testament and the formation there, you know, that the answer of like, what is right? What is correct? What is the truth? Like, these are things we care so much about now. And I think one thing that someone coming from, you know, a couple mm. thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, when some of these things are being formed, would say to one of these modern churches is, is like, you need to just loosen up a bit mm. about what, about this, we need to get to the truth. I care about the truth, the truth. There are a lot of truths, right? There's a, and we know this in any area of our life. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are true. Mm. And there's sometimes there's things that are true that are opposite to each other. They're, they're contradictory a little bit, but we know this in our life and we know how to sort those things out and we know how to give importance to this one and not to that or whatever. I'm just saying there's so much more holding two things in your hand and, and looking at them and, and saying, how can I incorporate both of these things? Or how mm. do both of these things fit into my life? Or how can I, you know, keep this, but also not abandon this other thing that is also, mm. instead of just looking for the absolute truth. And I, I think, think that's that, us. I think that's the difference between I guess, um, truth that maybe on one hand versus wisdom. Like, mm. and that's the beauty of, I think much of the Jewish tradition and the old Testament is this, uh, desire to guide your life with wisdom rather than with, you know, black and white rules. And I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's been years since I kind of suddenly realized like, I feel like we're losing that focus and that that might be one of the most beautiful things that the old Testament and the Jewish tradition has to offer. And, and yet the to to live in a way that's guided more by wisdom than by, necessarily like right and wrong or black and white the answers is um risky and scary and harder because it's not directed and every parent knows this (laughs) because that's what you're doing with children you know we know that we don't say let's let's give our children the answers to all the problems that they're going to ever have in their life you don't have enough time to do that right yeah like and you don't know what problems they're going to have exactly and we don't even know what the world's going to look like in 30 40 50 years right so what we do is we hope to impart wisdom to The them. ability for them to know what to do or right. to at least figure out what to do. Schools, the good schools, teach you not what to think, but how to think. Mm-hmm. That's, that's... Wow, and what if we <laughs> applied that to the way we see the Bible? Right, it's, it's not what opposite. to think, but it, how to it think. It feels like, in my experience, a lot of what I was doing in the church and when I taught was teaching someone what to think, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the pressure I felt on a Sunday morning or a Saturday, right, to, when I'm prepping. It's like what, how do I, <laughs> how do I convey, here's the scripture we have, how do I convey the truths of this scripture to them? And it just sort of, like, we, like we've said, that Rachel Held Evans quote of, you know, the Bible is used to end conversations instead of start, start conversations, yeah. right? And that's what I was trying to do. That's the pressure I felt is like, I need to know my stance on this thing. I need to know my doctrine on this. I need to know my theology on this thing so I can, and, and some of that's okay, like to know what you think about something. I'm not saying that's wrong, but if the goal is to help someone learn how to think, if the goal is to give someone wisdom and not the answers, then I think we're, we're going about this, you know, some ways that aren't helpful, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely agree. And I think, you know, as we look back on this topic um, and these criteria, I think for me, it both, you know, it affects the way I view the new Testament in two different ways. I mean, first of all, 
uh, I appreciate, as I've said before in the inspiration episode, I appreciate that there were processes and systems and thoughts and intentionality that went into the texts as we have them today and the, the collection that we specifically have. And, and I think that's actually, in a sense, more trustworthy than just saying these are the divinely inspired words of God. Because then, you know, how do you, how do you prove that? And what if the, the God behind them was actually crazy? You know, who knows? But when you go, okay, there, there were people just as smart, probably smarter than we are, who cared deeply about this and went to quite an effort to try to, f- to s- sift down the text to the most important, the best, the most qualified, the most used. Like, that does give me respect for these texts, um, and it always will. But at the same time, I also have a lot of questions and worries and fears around the process, largely due to the idea that we kind of touched on already of power and majority and voices and who gets to decide. Um, I can't help but question the basis of a lot of these criteria. I mean, first of all, apostolicity. I mean, like I said, why does Paul get to count as an apostle? That's a big question for me. And what would Christianity look like if his letters weren't considered as authoritative as they are? Um, Or in orthodoxy, you know, who gets to decide what's orthodox, what is essential to Christianity and what is not. Um, it's kind of the, the majority or the, the most powerful leaders, the ones that eventually are endorsed by the Roman Empire, um, in addition to others. Or, or Catholicity, you know, the, okay, so the majority rules and what if the majority isn't right? So with all of the criteria, there's, there, there's a flip side to both. That doesn't mean that we got the wrong text somehow, but it does mean, I think, that we need to be wise, I guess, in how we approach them and acknowledge that there could be texts out there that could be really, really important and helpful that we've never read. And some of them maybe don't exist anymore because the parchment's all dissolved and we're never going to see them again, which is heartbreaking for any scholar. (laughs) But, you know, some of them maybe are still out there. And, um, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I come back to texts like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that I'm so curious about. And, you know, why didn't she count as an apostle? I mean, she is, you know, the Catholic Church has kind of officially called her an apostle as of the last, I think, 30 years. Now she gets to be called an apostle after 2,000 years of being called a prostitute. But she is the apostle to the apostles. opposites there. Yeah. Um, She's, now it's acknowledged that she was the first one to bring the good news to the disciples themselves. And yet, you know, that's not the way she was seen. And if she wrote something down, would it have been considered um, legitimate under the criteria of apostolicity? Like, probably not at that time, but maybe it would now. So how would that kind of Mm. perspective have changed the texts that we have today? So, I don't know. I mean, maybe do we consistently end our episodes with more questions than answers? But I think that's the goal. Yeah. I think that's the goal, and that's what I was saying earlier. I think... I mean, questions are powerful, right? Because questions lead you on a journey and they they lead you on um, having to hold sometimes two different truths or, yeah, just it's it's more complicated when you are asking these good questions and you have to kind of sift through stuff and weigh different opinions. And yeah, I think, and I think that's what, um, that's what I hope people kind of come away with is 
that tight grip you have on what is truth. It might not be what you think it is. Or answering that question might not be as important as you think it is. Yeah. Well, thanks for going on this little mini journey with us here in episode three of the Canon series. <laughs> and if you want more of this type of stuff, that is what our whole Patreon experience is for. We have a community. We have a group of a few hundred of you um, on Facebook that take part in discussions. And I wanted to, we don't have time today, but I wanted to even read some of these the stories that we're getting mm. in Patreon um, and just so many comments and uh, people, you know, you're there for each other in here in this group. And because it's tough, right? Because kind of scattered all around the country, we're scattered all around the world. I mean, there's almost radical listeners in like 200 countries. It's crazy. And you're all on these little mini journeys where you don't know how many others are experiencing some of these same things that you are and are kind of questioning and wondering and, and challenging some of these um, long-held beliefs and truths. And But I just tell you, and I say this all the time on this show, you're not alone. You're not crazy. And that's why we do this show. Um, and so I'd love for you to get to take part in this this whole kind of community of people. We do Zoom calls. We have this Facebook group. We have a second, whole second show that we do. And I'd love for you to get to, to be a part of that. You can go to almostheretical.com to find out more about that. And we'll see you on the inside there. Thanks for joining.